I V M. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do, and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma, and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience, and constitutional law, so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday, so do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to the Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. And now let's move on to the show. Are you a different person when you are in a crowd than when you are alone? I know I am. Sometimes you adjust your behavior to fit the social norms expected in a given situation. Sometimes you're anxious either to fit in or to impress. You have a performative self, perhaps even different performative selves for different situations. But maybe being in a crowd doesn't change you as much as it amplifies some part of your character. In a cricket stadium, you cheer louder for your favorite team and feel deeper emotion. And maybe when you're part of an angry crowd, baying for the blood of someone who is not from these parts or who is not part of your community, your baser instincts get aroused and you do things you would never do if you were alone. You hit somebody, you hurt somebody, maybe you kill somebody. Are you a different person when you're in a crowd than when you're alone? Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. Last week, the Supreme Court asked the Indian Parliament to enact a new law against lynching. I wrote a post in the group blog I edit, Pragati Express at express.thinkpragati.com, arguing that this was just virtue signaling by the court. There were already laws against beating people, against killing people. There are even laws that can be used to prosecute people who spread fake news on WhatsApp. A new law would not cover anything that isn't already covered. Our problem is not that we don't have enough laws but that we don't have the rule of law. Sometimes the state doesn't have the will to prosecute certain crimes. And even when it does, often when it does, there is not enough state capacity to prosecute them. Creating a new law is not going to solve these problems. Anyway, the topic for today's show is crowd violence in India and my guests today are Madhav Chandavarkar and Alok Prasanna Kumar. Madhav is a legal expert at the Takshashila Institution and Alok runs the Bangalore branch of Vidhi, a legal think tank. They are working on a project together that involves lynching and crowd violence and I am delighted that they agreed to chat with me about it. But before I cut to the conversation that we had, a small commercial break. 
If this happens to be the only podcast you listen to, well, you need to listen to some more. Check out the ones from IVM Podcast who co-produce the show with me. Go to ivmpodcast.com or download the IVM app and you'll find a host of great Indian podcasts that cover every subject you could think of. From the magazine I edit Pragati at thinkpragati.com, there is the Pragati podcast hosted by Hamsani Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. There is a brilliant Hindi podcast, Pulia Bazi. hosted by Pranay Kotasane and Saurabh Chandra and apart from these policy podcasts IVM has shows that cover music films finance sports sci-fi tech and the lgbt community all under one roof or rather all in one app so download the IVM podcast app today Alok Madhav welcome to the show thank you thank you nice to be here So the Supreme Court just came out with this um, uh, suggestion today to the Parliament that it enact a law to stop lynching, to deal with lynching. And like I wrote a comment on Pragati Express about how that's com- just virtue signaling because uh, you know laws already exist that deal with beatings, with killings, with spreading fake news if it comes to that. Uh, and um, Alok, I know you have a slightly deeper take on uh, what the Supreme Court fundamentally gets wrong, even in understanding the, this problem of uh, crowd violence. Uh, can you elaborate on that? A bit? Yeah, and I think you said it best. That virtue signaling, and if you see the judgment itself, they don't seem to have any idea of what they're talking about, because this petition, then go to go back to when this petition was filed in 2016, was filed in a particular context. You've had these instances of Muslims of Dalits being attacked and being killed. over rumors or that they were handling bee for possessing bee for transporting cows or some such kind of a thing and more often than not the attackers were largely upper caste hindus or dominant communities in that area nowhere in the judgment of the supreme court go into this at all it does not discuss even one incident of what it means by lynching right it is talking about this issue in a totally a contextual way that is you know just some accidental thing that happens without any uh basis for in, in without any historical or sociological context but we know lynching is not something that happens just like that or just something that happens because the police aren't doing their job properly or the police aren't you know haven't uh, done their duties properly it happens in a particular historical and sociological concept even the term lynching academically and sociologically is used in a particular historical context now if we go back to the late 19th century and early 20th century the incidents happened largely in the southern part of the us in the former slave holding states where after the civil war when the north stops imposing the reconstruction so to speak where they try to ensure that uh african americans are treated more equally and the laws aren't unequal towards them the white community tries to reimpose some level of dominance over the african american community there and therefore you find that largely african american men are victims of lynching these are all public events nobody is suddenly picking up someone and trying to kill them there are even postcards made of these events postcards are made and people circulate them freely to say look what we did right nobody is doing this secretly or in private uh, yes of course you have the ku klux klan and all of those but the instances of lynching take place in a very public manner there is a what we would now call a performative aspect to say we are happy we did this and we are sending out a message that this is what we will do if you dare to cross racial boundaries you know there is there are these fears raised I mean like how we have beef as a fear then the fear was interracial mixing or interracial marriage look uh, black men can't resist themselves and they see white women and so on 
So you have these fears raised that we need to somehow control black men. And therefore, that is the kind of uh, fear that is created. And that sort of leads to these kind of incidents of lynching. It is not some totally a contextual set of killings which take place. None of that is informed in the way in which the Supreme Court approaches the issue. They quote Mark Twain. They quote Benjamin Franklin, but they don't actually quote any of the historical studies or the solid data-driven work which has gone into understanding the phenomenon. Forget about the US. Even in India, there's tons and tons of work which has gone into understanding and examining each of these events, going in-depth into why these happened and what has happened. And that also results in some of the directions that the Supreme Court passes. The way they say, oh, you know, if the police just take care and do this and they appoint a nodal officer and make sure you file the FIR and fast track court, everything will be fine. The silly thing is exactly all of this, in fact, happened in Jharkhand. Uh, in Jharkhand, uh, over the killing of one cattle trader, Ali Muddin Ansari, who was actually uh, killed by the um, upper caste Hindus in that area for uh, quote-unquote uh, transporting beef, the state government did quickly file the FIR, did arrest 11 people. There was a fast-track trial in one year. They were all convicted, except the high court gave bail to eight of them almost soon after because the trial was so shoddily conducted, because the evidence was not presented properly, because the rules of procedure were not followed at all. So it's all very well to say all of this, but you're just only ensuring that even justice is not done properly. And to compound matters, you have a giant now who goes there and garlands these eight people saying, wow, rule of law one. Right. So the Supreme Court is completely mistaken about what it is talking about at all. It has so completely failed to even understand the you know, underlying sociological uh, phenomenon, which leads to things like lynching, that when it gives these directions, when it gives these kinds of uh, guidelines or whatever you want to call it, it has no clue how they will be effective. And making a new law will have no impact at all. I mean, deterrence theory has been discredited for years and years now. And that it's kind of ridiculous that judges still think that if you have a new law which deals exclusively Exclusively with this, it will be sufficiently harsh. I mean, why should I blame judges? Even some of the well-meaning people seem to think that if you have a new law exclusively dealing with lynching, that will handle the issue. I mean, I'm not going to blame the judges alone in this. So, which is why I, I, I don't think people really understand what the phenomenon going on here. So, is. I have a couple of uh, clarificatory questions here. Yeah. The first is to do with the terminology. Yeah. That where did lynching come from and the judges don't understand it. Yeah. So, uh, Let's say we've seen two kinds of organized violence in recent times, which have been loosely the term lynching has been used for them. Yeah. One is, of course, for criminal purposes, like people transporting beef and all that. And, yeah. uh, you know, generally it will be a Hindu mob getting together and beating yeah. up or killing a Muslim or a Dalit. And yeah. uh, as you pointed out uh, uh, with the post-Civil War lynchings, uh, the yeah. 19th century lynchings, there's a certain amount of pride in the people carrying them yeah. out. Uh, the other kind is when these fake rumors are spread through WhatsApp that strangers are abducting children yeah. and uh, for that random strangers who just don't happen to be from the area yeah. are uh, lynched yeah. and there's not necessarily a communal angle to it nor yeah. is it uh, necessarily uh, a matter of communal pride community pride mm. uh, so would you then say that the second kind of mob violence is not really lynching it's not really lynching at all and I think mm. we're making a huge mistake in fact by calling it lynching at all I actually prefer to use the vaguest term which is killings the reason why I say this is 
So India Spend has this extraordinarily detailed uh, spreadsheet that they keep updating on a daily basis. It's on their website. And if you actually go through it, go, there are about 68 events they've kept track of starting from February of this year. That's the earliest event, if I'm not mistaken, that they have cataloged. They could be earlier dating back to and, and they're focused specifically on child lifter rumors being spread on WhatsApp and so on. These um, instances are everywhere from Gujarat to you know Tamil Nadu to uh, you know in northeast as well uh, in Assam if I'm not mistaken. So they are spread across the country. Uh, interestingly, there is a mix of urban and rural areas. You have events in uh, instances in Ahmedabad, you have instances in Bangalore, you have instances in tribal hamlets, you have instances in Malegaon, you have instances across the country. The common factor, as you can see, is that. One, as you pointed out, it's just a stranger. The only thing common is they don't know who that person is, right? They can't identify who that person is. So you've had Muslim mobs attacking Hindus. You have had Hindu mobs attacking Muslims. You have had upper caste mobs attacking uh, lower caste. You've had lower caste mobs attacking upper castes. You have had uh, tribals attacking non-tribals. You have had... uh, you know, people of not well-off attacking equally non-well-off people. For instance, in Bangalore, uh, it was actually a Tamil majority area, which is not one of the well-off areas in Bangalore. The man who was attacked was a Rajasthani speaker, right? So somebody who didn't speak, forget about Kannada, didn't speak Tamil, right? So which is why you can't even use that whole thing about some level of social control or some level of context there. It's just that this was somebody that was just caused a mild level of panic simply by being a stranger. So, you can't find any common pattern to describe lynching as we would understand it uh, commonly. The second thing is that the communities themselves where this is happening seem to be underprivileged communities by and large. You're not talking about, say, dominant caste, even say, for instance, dominant caste in terms of rural areas, those who enjoy some privilege in terms of hierarchy and so on. They are communities who don't seem to have that level of access to state uh, resources like no, nobody here in this community can for instance or for instance actually thought of calling their local corporator or police officer and saying hey i heard these rumors uh, are they true or uh, can you do something about it or do you think you can ask the cops to increase patrolling you can imagine if this is a community which had good connections if the local corporator was from them or if the local police was somebody that they knew they'd be able to get something done about it right or at least visibly done something so what you're referring to where the killers aren't from a dominant community you're talking about the second kind of killings as it were. yes second kind uh, of killings not the first kind not where the they are kind. definitely the dominant exactly. community because if you see all the lynchings the lynchings proper you will find that the police either have a you know, blase attitude towards the whole thing. You would have seen the recent pictures from Uttar Pradesh where the police are generally tagging along as they drag the body of the victim. You will find in many cases, the police hand over the person that they catch or they come fairly late onto the scene and take the, and file FIRs against the victim, right? So there is some sort of a tacit or even active support of the killers from the police machinery. Whereas in terms of the child lifter killings, we find the police themselves being attacked in so many cases. When the police reach to, you know, rescues the people being beaten up, they get attacked because the crowd is in a total state of panic. They don't know if the police are, you know, in disguise or actually the police. They don't enjoy any support and they have such a level of mistrust with the police that they sometimes end up attacking them. So even the police can't control them. So there is that one very key difference that is very noticeable if you just examine the reports. I mean, there still needs to be more studies done as to how the people reacted when the police came. And when you read their fires, you'll get more details. But 
clearly it is not as if the police knew what was happening or the police knew whom to speak to and control the situation repeatedly one very detailed instance comes from malega for instance where um, the you know the police in charge try to speak to the elders to say please calm the mob down and they say we don't have any control people have just you know gone crazy about the situation they think these five people whom they don't know have are child lifters which is crazy because the five people in question are everything from a child of 5 years old to somebody 40 50 years old so which is why there is a certain level of irrationality which has gripped the mob it is not a calculated effort to, to do something to show that we are asserting control or any such thing so which is why this phenomenon needs to be tackled very differently uh, some police uh, agencies are getting this they are understanding that okay this is a failure on our part we haven't reached out to these communities so which is why the first response is to say let's reach out i mean it's a- apart from just saying uh, don't believe in rumors they're going out to the communities to say we are here please call us these But are being proactively trying they're to being proactively things. trying to say that these are our numbers call us in some cases this has I mean, they've messed up very badly. For instance, in Tripura, instead of the police going out, the state government, in a very stupid move, sent somebody from the Agartala to a village to say, "Please tell everybody to not to panic." Except that poor fellow got killed. They thought he was a child lifter because he wasn't wearing a uniform. He was somebody from the state government. The state tried to deal with it as a pure PR exercise. The police didn't accompany him. There was no official stamp about him, so he got killed in the process. So there is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. There's a right way to do this is to treat it as a look. There is a failure of the police machinery here. There's a breakdown of trust uh, between communities and the police. But there is one deeper question to go to. why are people believing these rumors right it's not just whatsapp which is causing it we had you know 20 years ago people believing rumors about ganesha's drinking milk pre whatsapp pre internet we found uh, instances of uh, similar killings in rural west bengal uh, about 30 or 40 years ago so rumors do spread right uh, rumors are there all around us all the time why is it that they suddenly get acted upon at certain points of time this is an open question and i think this is really the issue which needs to be looked at and researched and i don't say i have an immediate answer for this uh, one potential answer is that these are communities which feel some level of anxiety about them that they feel they are under threat in some way that could be an economic threat could be that they feel that they're being going to be displaced or could be that they genuinely feel that, that there have been instances of uh, child lifting but maybe they feel that there is a genuine breakdown of relationship between the police and the so there needs to be more deeper questions asked and we should not stop at just calling it lynching we should not just stop at saying it's whatsapp fault and we shouldn't just stop at saying it's the police's fault so that's that's sort of why i want to make this conceptual difference between so madhav i want to turn to you i mean uh, there are really uh, two interesting questions here i mean one is what alok uh, just raised about why do people believe such rumors and and not just why do people believe such rumors but rumors are pretty uh, ubiquitous and why at certain times uh, do certain rumors uh, gain currencies which is a large open question but the other open question which i know you spent a lot of uh, time thinking about is why do crowds get roused to violence when very often crowds are composed of individuals who by themselves would not have that proclivity for violence but when a crowd comes together it seems to behave entirely like a beast of its own so are these two kinds of crowd violence related is there a common theory that kind of explains them there's a long history in terms of the pathology of of crowd violence uh 
on the first question, I think uh, whatever theories we have in terms of cognitive biases and why people would believe uh, easily uh, disprovable information, uh, I think there's a, a fair amount of research uh, that I think has been discussed in uh, this podcast before, so I won't go too much into that. But uh, the history of crowd pathology uh, is quite uh, bizarre because uh, for I think most people have a very uh, poor understanding of how crowd violence works. They seem to think that when someone is in a crowd, uh, it's sort of the so-called mob mentality takes over and you sort of reduce to a primal sort of feral violent sort of personality. But that's not actually true. And that theory actually comes from uh, this French polymath called Gustave Le Bon. Uh, I think he published his paper in 1895 in the specific context of uh, the Third French Revolution. And if you look at the actual sort of empirical evidence that we have now, the violence that was happening in Paris at that time was the opposite of a mindless mob. It was very structured. They had very clear goals and motivations. And uh, and that theory of Le Bon is sort of uh, proven to be very sticky to the extent that even when it has been disproved, it has set the parameters of the discussion. So I think in late 1920s, an American uh, FH Allport came and basically argue the opposite, that instead of uh, crowds making uh, someone revert uh, to some primal self, the people who uh, commit violence in crowds are just bad eggs. So, mm. you know, they're just bad people. So they bring in their baggage with them, and that's why the violence happens. And that is also empirically uh, unsound. And what has happened since is that a lot of people have sort of merged these two theories in a very toxic way. They sort of argue that the Libon majority of the crowd is this hapless, mindless, very easily influenced uh, sort of section. And they get turned over, or hijacked or flipped. There are a lot of police terminology uh, sort of used to describe uh, by a all-portent minority. Uh, and this is the uh, prevalent uh, sort of understanding of mob violence, the so-called agent provocateur. So basically the bad eggs make the sheep do terrible things. Exactly. Kind of thing. And the, the biggest problem with this understanding of crowd pathology is that uh, nowhere is the role of uh, the police factored in. So uh, in the sort of late 70s and early 80s, uh, there was this guy called Stephen Riker. Uh, who basically came up, uh, and this he comes at the end of a lot of intellectual thought. Uh, so he has an excellent paper that I would recommend reading called The Psychology of Crowd Dynamics. And basically he uh, argues for what he calls the elaborated social identity model, where the basic argument is that uh, everyone has a very unique individual sense of identity. But what happens when you get thrown into crowds? And by crowds, uh, Riker's not just talking about, you know, mobs in the streets. He's talking about any collectivization. Uh, what happens is that you shift from that individual identity to the collective identity. And you sort of almost, you start 
because of social pressure and a lot of other factors, start subscribing to the norms and behaviors of that group. And it is, I think, uh, in that context that the fake news and the, the WhatsApp and the Twitter uh, sort of come into play. In fact, to me, Twitter is more dangerous than uh, WhatsApp news because Twitter is the, the kindling and WhatsApp news is simply the, the spark. Uh, and a spark without kindling is is harmless. Uh, and it's the discussions on Twitter, as well as maybe some of the actions or rather non-actions of our uh, sort of influence setters, uh, like uh, sort of political leaders or uh, actors or whoever it may be, uh, that sort of influence these these norms and change the accepted modes of behavior. So a lot of what Alok was talking about in terms of uh, upper caste Hindu uh, men uh, violently uh, securing a social order of some kind is witnessed every day by all of us on Twitter. And uh, I think that is uh, the more sort of, uh, it's also the more difficult nut to crack. How do you change social norms? WhatsApp news is fake news. Uh, it becomes this, it's still a very nebulous idea, but at least in people's conceptions, there's a very easy solution. You stop it, as opposed to changing norms. How, how do you even begin to go about uh, such a task? So just to paraphrase you and uh, correct me if I did it wrong, what you're essentially saying is that there is an inherent tribalism in us, which is amplified by Twitter. And then what happens on WhatsApp subsequently is just an expression of that. Uh, no, I wouldn't say uh, there's an inherent tribalism. You don't feel the tribalism is inherent? Um, perhaps I'm little uncomfortable with the connotations of the word tribalism. I, okay. I think there is some there's some connotations of reverting to a primitive. But uh, in self. the sense, I'd say that all of us are hardwired to think in terms of in groups and the other. And uh, culture is I, the and the whole enlightenment uh, project is essentially about fighting our hardwiring in many of these primitive ways. Yeah, so that's actually the the whole concept of the in group and the other something that features very much into the ESIM model of uh, crowd policing. Okay. Uh, because what they uh, say is that if you have a peaceful protest, and which the police think that, okay, it's a bunch of peaceful protesters, but, you know, it's the Laborn majority which may get hijacked. Right. So the police treat them as a homogenous danger, even if they understand that the crowd in front of them is uh, heterogeneous. Uh, and what that encourages is uh, escalated policing. So your lati charges, water mm. cannons, rubber bullets, whatever it may be. Mm. And what that does is that it... Uh, one, it takes a majority of the crowds, which Riker calls moderates. Mm. And the moderates basically go, I am doing some legitimate activity like uh, enjoying a football game or uh, politically protesting. I am being prevented from this legitimate activity by this extremely violent police, which then casts the police as illegitimate. And what it automatically does is because the police is treating that entire crowd homogeneously, they start to identify with the slightly more radical elements that may be there in the crowd saying that, yeah, you know, these guys are the enemy, see what they're doing. And then that sort of that interplay between the various identities and beliefs and the reactions to the actions of each of those collective groupings is then what 
drives that crowd towards uh, violence so essentially you're saying the crowd is probably not radical to start with but because the police preemptively treats it as radical because of the lebon theory that a few small eggs will make them all go bad so treat them all the same actually radicalizes them and drives them towards violence yeah which is my number one problem with the supreme court's uh, judgment because they basically saying more of the same and not with any nuance yeah. so if it's not more of the same for example like i figured out what you mean by the same which is the whole uh, lebon model of crowd violence and therefore don't so what what would you do differently like how should the police so uh, so what uh, the esim or a lot of people within uh, that sort of theory uh, say is exactly what alok was saying which is about community management community participation it's i think a, a drowning voice in the black lives matter movement that what you need to do is actually uh, have more interactions to build back the trust uh, because uh, what is there right now is a fundamental distrust of the police uh, and uh, so that will only happen through uh, not only whatever the thousand police reforms they need to be done in the country but even if those happen that the trust will only be brought back by continuous engagement but isn't there a, a sort of uh, dual problem there at number one we don't have state capacity in the sense that we simply don't have enough police and they are trained very badly and uh, this is too much of a ask and beyond the state capacity there is also the problem of the will like alok correctly pointed out in many of the communal kind of communal lynchings which is mm. is appropriate to call them lynchings uh, the police are actually on the side of the mob uh, in a sense so which is what makes us inherently uh, skeptical of any solution that says more policing right yeah. right uh, so by policing i mean specifically the police going out on streets mm. with the lathis or the, the guns or whatever violent forms uh but or even arrests or detentions but i am happy with a sort of non violent more sort of communicative participatory uh forms of uh, policing like alok was talking about i don't see uh, as much of uh, danger over there so yeah. just to build on that a little bit again each problem requires its own set of solutions and while we are talking about how to manage these kinds of whatsapp rumor based killings what this requires is for the police to go back build its trust with the communities i mean of course the, the killings need to be handled as you know through the criminal justice system you have to bring the perpetrators to violence to the justice all of that has to happen but the police need to go back to the communities they can't just militarize shut down the places increase police presence and think that the problem will go away that will only cause more panic that will make people believe that you know we are now being punished for what we think we were trying to defend our community kind of stuff so is part of the problem in this kind of for example rumor uh, fueled killings hmm. uh, that uh, the people at large especially the kind of marginalized people you hmm. say are usually uh, the perpetrators uh, don't have faith in the rule of law to begin with so when they hear about child abductions in the area they think that damn we got to take this into our own hands yeah i think that is that is i think at the core of this right i think at the core of it it is that they, they just don't feel we can reach out to the police that we don't think action will be taken that even if we go there right nobody's going to listen to us i mean just a slight digression uh, one of the things that keep coming up when you sort of uh, read people's assessment of a government especially across north india and in rural a lot of rural belts is hamari sunwai 
right like mm. they, they would think that if a government listens to us is good enough they they don't even if outcomes may be good or bad uh they judge a government on how well they listen uh and the fact that you can't expect even if you, you can't even expect a hearing from this police or you can't even expect to go be heard by this police suggests that such a total level of breakdown there and in inevitably innumerable innumerable number of cases you will keep finding that you can't even expect the police to take down your complaint if you don't go with your local mla or a local corporate or a local panchayat officer and that is for the people who have access to these level of uh, you know government uh, functionaries if you are a community or if you are a group of people who have no access to these functionaries then you feel even more cut off from the, the, the rule of law seems like nothing i mean it's just a conception that doesn't has no meaning at all for you right so which is why you, you, you have to first start by enforcing that yes we will respond we will listen to you we are here to respond to you and we are here to understand what you don't take the law into your own hands that is where that can have a sort of meaningful response in at least preventing future outbreaks and preventing more people from taking the law into their own hands in that sense yeah and there are in terms of the impact uh, of like the fundamental breakdown of rule of law that we currently have in our country it's i think dual fold one is uh the sense that the the social orders that we currently live by are no longer legitimate so the people feel that they are no longer uh, need to be bound by them uh and that is more a question of uh, a normative position of whether they should engage in a certain behavior or not and the other is just a, a simple metric of power they feel they can get away with it yeah. right so let me let me uh, try to sort of um, um summarize what i've learned uh, from you guys about these two different kinds of violence which is very clear to me now that you've explained it that the lynchings that happen over say eating beef and so on are fundamentally just in every possible way different from the kind of killings which happen over whatsapp rumors so let me try and summarize it and tell me if you have something to add to that um what's happening in the case of the whatsapp rumors is that they are Uh, let's leave aside the question of why people have a proclivity to believe these kinds of rumors because we are a species that after all feeds on narrative we mm. we make sense of the world through stories so uh, you know what the precise uh, mechanism of these rumors working is a different matter but these are generally committed by marginalized groups who recognize that there is no rule of law in this country which is something i've always said the rule mm. of law if it exists exists only for the very rich mm. it simply does not exist for most of the people and in fact i'd uh, you know madhav i disagree with your terming it a breakdown of uh, the rule of law i don't think the rule of law has actually existed in india at all all through our independence and these are marginalized groups who because they realize a lack of the existence of the rule of law uh, do not trust the police at all mm-hmm. and therefore when they believe these uh, narratives uh, these paranoid narratives of child abductors or whatever the case may be uh, take matters into their own hand and even when the police actually come and they try to intervene uh, they, they'll beat up the police as yeah. we've seen in uh, yeah. recent cases they just don't care yeah. so that's one aspect of the problem and you would say that merely trying to apply the danda will make these guys more angry yeah. and will make matters worse and therefore one way of doing it is through a police outreach to them and making them trust the law again which yeah. seems to require massive structural changes and it almost sounds impossible uh, the other kind of violence which is 
the lynchings per se uh, are very different in the sense that they are normally carried out by the dominant community which uh, like you said mostly in the cases that we've been seeing are upper caste hindus who are uh, beating up or killing dalits or uh, uh, muslims they are against the other they often have the tacit support of the police if the rule of law exists it exists in a perverse way that mm-hmm. the legal machinery is on their side mm-hmm. and it is again it is against the other but yeah. it's driven it seems to me largely by tribalism which yeah. i would argue is inherent in humans but amplified by uh, social media yeah. so a do you uh, are these characterizations accurate and b what are the different kinds of ways in which as policy people you would set out to deal with them i would uh sort of maybe dispute a little bit with the characterization of the second uh, kind i'd say the sort of defining characteristic i think alok alluded to it earlier is one that is inherently political i think right. there is a a, yeah. a a question of some political purpose or political structure that is sort to be achieved or protected in some way and that is uh, sort of i think one of the defining characteristics of the the lynching uh, kinds of violence and like for example like what kind of politi- can you uh, illustrate that like uh, is it that the dominant groups want more state patronage and they want to cut off no, the co- others yeah consider this you know like for instance go back to the 2014 uh, campaign hmm. uh, we were all hearing acche din but hmm. there was a threat to the campaign that we in the tv didn't hear it but if mm. you heard modi's speeches there was a whole oh look at what the upa government did with the pink revolution mm. which was a clearly targeted at the fact that uh, india's meat exports mm. had increased right. right and that was coded message saying mm. that look these guys have benefited at your expense right these guys being the muslim communities benefited mm. these butcher communities have benefited mm. at your expense mm. right which is clearly to pit one community against the other it pit them at a very socio economic status to say that they are benefiting and you are not how unfair is that right it it may not have anything to do directly at the ground level right you may measure the gdp and say no actually uh, muslims are still not as well off as uh, equivalent hindu communities but that message struck right that message struck and that was used later on to push that narrative of you know uh, and of course you pass the laws the, mm. the key element here is something that the supreme court totally misses out mm. is the fact that you have passed the laws legitimizing the notion that even possessing beef is somehow illegal and unfair so all those laws supreme court has made no mention of uh, supreme court has again not even acknowledged its own role in weakening the atrocities act which makes it more difficult to prosecute people who uh, uh, attack the dalits for being dalits so you have uh, all of these things which uh, sort of uh, aggravate existing social inequalities disparities to specifically say the government is on the side of this community the government is going to support you against the rest of the people and that is to sort of give you the impression that when you take things in your own hands we are there to take have your backs we are there to protect you so it makes a difference that when say an fir is filed saying that this person was killed a counter fir is filed which says actually no this person was carrying beef right right and that, it's almost as if the second one is a greater crime the second one is a greater crime 
because why there's a legal framework which sort of was passed by the people in power to protect you in case you do something like that. So there is that there is that political gain which is to be made by sort of pitting that one community against the other. So something I'm, I'm fond of quoting is something the late Andrew Breitbart once said: hmm. "Politics is downstream of culture." And I would hold that before you had this communal Hindu versus Muslim politics, you had that animosity actually embedded in the culture. That you know, this is not something new. You you'll see this that from the time the Jansang was formed as a political formulation, for example, they've consistently over the years got that fifteen, sixteen percent of the vote or whatever it is, and uh, these ideas, these thoughts, uh, this tribalism was in the culture and has only been amplified now. And of course, one theory is that it's social media has helped to amplify it because uh, you know you have what is called preference cascades. People sort of hmm. discover there are so many others uh, like them. What I call invisible. Gets. Mm-hmm. and um, uh, and they all come out of the cupboard and and and, and then that's a consolidation there mm-hmm. so i'm i'm not quite sure about the formulation that this is you know is purely political but leave that aside i mean that's that's mm-hmm. uh, it's no i i would i wouldn't say this purely political i just meant that it's one of its defining characteristics is that, is yeah. that there is some political purpose mm-hmm. that is uh, sort of at the root of the violence right so whether it is uh, preventing intercaste marriages mm-hmm. or uh, uh, sort of the 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 whole beef uh, sort of issue and everything that has happened around that uh, it's there is some political motive behind it and also, not just political, there is some um, level of calculation. Uh, this may not necessarily be uh, premeditated, though that is often the case. But certainly afterwards, uh, statements and the actions made by whether it's people in power or just the leaders of that organization are calculated to continue the legitimacy of those actions. Yes. With the, the second kind of... Uh, violence. I, I'm not saying it's completely apolitical. Right. That's that's not what I'm saying. But it's more uh, the outcome of political negligence. So I would say maybe that uh, I have. I frequently like to say, uh, sort of treat the disease, not the symptom. Right. Which the Supreme Court judgment just does not do. Right. Uh, it only treats the symptoms. Uh, so I'd say with the. Um, uh, the first example of the lynchings, the disease itself is political in nature. Right. Um, and as well as the symptoms. Mm-hmm. But with the second, it's just the uh, disease. The, the symptoms itself in terms of the actual outbreak of violence, mm. that is not really political. It's, right. it's just about because that community for a long period of time, I, I don't know how clear this distinction has come out. But because that community for a very long time has been politically neglected in some right. way, that they are sort of driven to this edge. Right. Uh, so it is their absence within the political system. It yes. is a marginalization yeah. from the exactly. political system, yeah. which is and, and, causing... And this is something that is, uh, again, I, I sound like a, so I'm being paid by some ESIM psychologists, <laughs> but uh, this is something that is borne out in empirical evidence of, say, riots uh, and also... Uh, they've gone through some of the previous studies that proved slightly more uh, Alportian or Le Bon sort of theories of crowd psychology and run them through their models and have come out with results that prove their model and show that the other ones are empirically unsound and basically show that 
say I think with the Tottenham riots in London. Hmm. Uh, it was about the persecution of uh, Mark Duggan. I forget his yeah. uh, name, but there was this one individual who was who died during an arrest, and uh, the community viewed that effectively like an assassination. Right. And that was because of a long history of marginalization and just being uh, persecuted, right. if not prosecuted. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, it is does stem from a, a long history of. Uh, so let, let me throw this question to you. I mean, we started by discussing the Supreme Court judgment and uh, you guys explained how it's so fundamentally flawed. And we've also sort of spoken about how these two kinds of violence are fundamentally different and need to be dealt with differently. Let's say that you are the Supreme Court, yeah. the two of you are the Supreme Court bench, and yeah. you have to come up with a judgment that obviously won't make these mistakes. Yeah. Uh, what would be the broad contours of that judgment then? What right. would you say? See, one thing would be to identify that firstly, there is a legal framework which is sort of encouraging and promoting these kind of activities. I think that has to be attacked first. What is that framework? Which is, and, uh, so these which are is two that, act, what are we referring yeah. to? So we are talking about all these beef ban laws. Right. Right. We're talking about laws which sort of essentially say that my sentiments are more important than actual livelihoods. Right. That uh, you have state level laws which uh, sort of say that uh, sale. I mean, there are the there are the least harmful. The least harmful ones of these are the ones that say sale of meat is banned for eight or nine days, all the way to the uh, bomb, the, the Maharashtra law and the Uttar Pradesh law, which sort of say that even possession of uh, beef can land you in jail for eight or ten. Are years. these unconstitutional laws? I would say these are totally unconstitutional. Possession has been overturned. Yeah, but that is only by the Bombay, Bombay High Court, High Court yeah, uh, for the yeah. Maharashtra laws. Yeah. Uh, the appeals for them are pending in the Supreme Court. They've been pending since 2016. They haven't been heard yet. Um, they should have been heard by now. They should have been heard and decided by now because the Supreme Court in the Puttaswamy case mm. uh, very clearly said there's a right to eat what you want. There's a right to all of that. But as quickly as it listed and heard, say, I mean, the hearings are going on right now, the Section 377 case, I think this was just as important. The should, court should have taken this up and said, okay, we can't separate these two issues, right? We understand that somebody has filed a PIL for lynching, but I think we can't separate the issues. I think administratively and, and also judicially, the two issues should have been heard together. To have said that it's not as if these people are suddenly gathering together and, you know, killing Muslims or whatever for fun. They're doing this because there's a certain... A legal regime which sort of tells them that you know beef is so the first problem. part of your judgment of the Supreme Court, which the bench of Alok and Madhav would come up with, is change the legal framework yes. by declaring all these laws unconstitutional. Yes, absolutely. It would it would sort of make the thing to. Of course, our constitution has provisions relating to, you know, you should try and reduce cow slaughter and say, okay, fine, we'll give it a de minimis thing to say, yes, you can promote, uh, you know, safe uh, animal husbandry by reducing the need for cow slaughter, but we will not criminalize possession. We will allow, say, uh, slaughter of buffaloes and old cattle and so on and so forth. So we will take it back to the old 50s position, which uh, which had a sense, which drew a sensible balance between the these two considerations. That would be the start. The second would be to hold the state government responsible. To say the state government is going to be responsible for the killings, not just the police. And that would be in terms of saying, if you make a statement, you will be treated as an accused. If it is a post facto statement expressing support for the accused, you can be added as an accused. Uh, the state government has to come forth and sort of basically say that, yes, we will not be saying a word in favor of the accused that, you know, you can. it, it doesn't matter if it's the chief minister. It has to either you shut up and say nothing or you say we will let the 
criminal justice system take its course forward. Let the uh, case continue forward. Don't try to do something as silly as what happened in Jharkhand, where they were so, oh, no, we have to show everyone how amazing our judicial system is. We will carry out a botched trial. Right. You can't you can't repair the judicial system just for this one category of cases. Let it happen as it is intended to happen Two, I mean, you also have to uh, take into account that maybe it is not possible for these trials to take place in that state. Uh, the Supreme Court has to then uh, say that if any party comes to us saying that the police is prejudiced against us, we will immediately transfer out of that state, preferably to a state where that that particular party is not the ruling party. But then who will conduct the prosecution? Because uh, the police is part of yeah, that, right? Yeah, so which is, which is why, so for instance, I'll give you the most recent example, for instance, in the Katwa uh, rape case, uh, right. where they transferred it out of Jammu and Kashmir to uh, Chandigarh. I mean, the investigation was complete. They said the prosecution will now be conducted by the government authorities in Chandigarh. Uh, for instance, in the Gujarat riots case, they transferred it from Gujarat to Maharashtra, where the prosecutors from Maharashtra did it. So, they can appoint, I mean, the Supreme Court can say the problem is with the investigation itself. We will appoint, we will handpick a set of investigation, uh, police officers whom we feel can carry out a set of independent uh, investigations in these kind of cases. And all such uh, incidents will be investigated only by these authorities, irrespective of the state they're conducted. But some could argue that it's overreach on the part of the court, right? It's meddling with what should really it, be an executive. It is, that, uh, is, that is true. But, uh, but I also feel that in a sense, when the executive itself is part of the offense, right. right? We are talking about a situation like as with the Gujarat riots, as with the whole, as with, for instance, the 1984 riots, when the executive itself is seen to be aiding and abetting the offense. That is the part which the court has totally missed in the judgment. It's not as if these are happening despite the best efforts of somebody in the government to stop it, or the government just doesn't have the capacity to stop it. There is a level of aid, aid and abetment that is happening. I mean, you are having... As I pointed earlier, government ministers going and garlanding people who got this thing, you having accused who died, who being you know given the national flag and so on. So these are obvious signals being sent out, right? Saying that we know who, I mean, th this is whose side we are on in this matter. So this is why context matters for a lynching. This is why context matters. These are not entirely ahistorical. These are not entirely a contextual uh, killings. So which is why the court should have understood that these are usually killings where the government is in favor of one party over the other. So, you know, say that in such killings, we will transfer it out of one state to the other. Give us a list of such cases where you think the government has not done a good job. Okay, Jharkhand, they did a bad job of it. They could have done better. But where the state is just not moving ahead with the prosecution, where the state has filed cases against the victims, you know, so give us a list of those. We transfer out of those states. From Uttar Pradesh, we'll transfer it to maybe, uh, I don't know, Delhi. Uh, which is not ruled by the BJP, for instance, or transfer it from Gujarat to some other state, something like that. You know, give us a list of this thing. We'll, we are happy to do that. The thing is, these are all powers the court legitimately enjoys under the constitution for precisely this reason. The court doesn't have to manually oversee the investigation. They just need to ensure that the process takes place in a manner which inspires confidence. So in the, the court has a power according to the constitution that if they feel that a particular party cannot prosecute or yeah. decide on a case well enough, they can transfer it anywhere. Yes. yes. And they can even, for example, say that if the case is in a BJP state, yeah. they can transfer it to a non-BJP state yes. and take that political consideration into account. Yeah. I mean, they don't expressly say this, but they have done, done this in the past. Without saying it in so many words, they've done this in the past. For instance, uh, Jalata's case was moved out of Tamil Nadu to Karnataka. Right. Simply to keep, I mean, not, not because shift from AIDMK to DMK, but they recognize that the, because it referred to the Supremo of AIDMK, there is no chance of fair trial at all in this state. 
that whichever party is there, they would interfere with the trial. So they moved or the, the whole trial to the to Karnataka. So which is why they uh, they do have this power. They should have understood that this is what is actually going on, and they have failed to do so. So I think there was a lot of scope for this court to have done. But meaning this is also not surprising because uh, frequently, sort of one of the truisms that I keep on returning to as a lawyer, sort of interest, sort of working in the public policy space, is the justice must not only be done but also seen see. to be done. Yeah. And our current chief justice has shown his almost willful disregard of this concept uh, in uh, sort of some of the sort of actions and positions that he has taken. So, uh, can you briefly summarize that for those of my listeners who may not have been following legal developments? Uh, well, I think the better person to describe that may be uh, Alok because he is one of the participants. I think in that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, working backwards apart from this case um just in terms of um, how cases have been heard in the supreme court where you want to ensure fairness in the procedure where you want cases to be heard by uh, you know uh, judges without any conflict of interest that has not happened even cases relating to himself uh, chief justice deepak mishra has heard it himself by considering allegations against him uh, where in terms of the judge loya case uh, where people want to know what happened the judgment not he didn't author it but the bench that he was part of basically said nobody needs to know anything right some people have given statements that's it be happy with it nobody needs to ask any further questions that's the second instance that i can uh, think of uh, the fact is uh, even for instance uh, I, i can give an a current example with the section 377 case there are actually two cases the one case is the writ petitions filed by navtej johar and a few others which was challenging 377 directly in the supreme court but the second set of cases are actually a continuation of the old uh, kaushal cases uh which sort of questioned the correctness of justice singhvi's judgment which brought back 377 into the picture those have not been listed those have not been listed because according to the supreme court's own rules if those were listed justice deepak mishra would have had to involve the three other senior judges of the supreme court of india he did not want to do that he did not want to sit on the same bench as the three other judges who went on a press conference against him So you have this kind of petty politics in the, you know, the highest institution of the land, almost, which yes. makes you wonder that even if the, you know, even if the Supreme Court say uh, tries to correct the executive, who's going to watch the watchman? Exactly, which which, which creates this kind of uh, situation. But yeah, I mean, the the point, of course, being that at the end of the day, the Supreme Court had a chance to ensure that justice was seen to be done here in this case, and they've once again gloriously blown it. Yeah, I'd like to add one. dissenting opinion to what huh. uh, alok said it was a minor point where he said even if the politicians don't say anything i don't subscribe to that meaning maybe they shouldn't be held liable huh. but uh, i think the it, it has been pointed out sufficiently online at least about the silence of our honorable prime minister on some of these issues exactly. and as the sort of icon of his party and perhaps this current movement uh his his silence is as damning as any of the inflammatory statements that have been made by maybe 
slightly more minor players i absolutely agree and also uh, uh, on the campaign trail he's been incredibly skilled with dog whistles and uh, uh, you know what will simply happen if you do have the supreme court uh, saying that hey state government should not say anything mm-hmm. in their favor is that while ministers themselves may not say anything you'll have random party people yes. saying things and you know yeah. freedom of speech of course they can i mean yeah. we support their right to do so um so i'd like to sort of uh, uh you know wind it up by uh, asking uh, you guys a couple of questions that i ask all my guests on whatever subjects uh, uh, they are talking about and we'll uh, start with you alok um two questions each which is what makes you hopeful and what makes you despair about what is happening in this country with regard to mob violence and i mean both these kind of crowd violence the lynchings and the killings yeah. uh what makes me hopeful um is the fact that perversely i mean of all the people to have responded the first and perhaps the most effective response might have been whatsapps even though they may have about a 5 or 10% responsibility not not to say they are totally not, are not responsible they have a 5 or 10% responsibility uh their response i think one they tried to fix their platform there's an ongoing response two they have called for uh, people to submit proposals to carry out research i think ideally in an ideal situation should have been the government of india or some executive agency which says we want to commission studies to find out what is going on fine government moves slowly whatsapp moves quicker good for them but i think the fact that people are not uh, sort of keeping quiet at saying okay okay we'll fix these two three things and maybe the problem will go away uh i think it's a good thing um and i think if uh, some of the good research organizations that this country has sort of take up this challenge seriously and i know there are many uh who will go down to this uh, to go to the ground and not just research even media organizations i think what this really calls for is some of the kind of on the ground reporting that any number of solid reporters in this country can do if we can get 10 good on the ground long form pieces which sort of say this is what happened on that day when this person accidentally found themselves in the middle of a mob which thought they were a child lifter i think we will get an incredible insight into what is actually going on in this process so i think understanding what is going on uh, will help us uh, go there that at least makes me more helpful the fact that there is an interest and there is that capacity to find out what is going on i think that gives me hope um what makes me despair uh, of course is that uh, again in terms of the fact that the supreme judicial body with all its level of protections with all its judges is uninterested in saying what it should have said you know that that is what despairs me that you had this opportunity to say something even if the directions missed their mark right okay i'm i'm not saying that this court should have has the opportunity to think through things maybe as deeply as some of us may have but even if you had said uh, framed the issue in the way it ought to have been framed i think that would have been and even that signaling would have been really that important that signaling would have been great to have said we see that people are being killed over carrying beef i mean that is offensive to the idea of india we see that people are being killed for wearing jeans just for being just for being dalits who wear jeans that's an offensive idea to the notion of india being a republic if they had said that in a judgment right i think that would have itself sent out sufficient signal that they know what is happening they may be powerless to do something immediately about it or their measures may have missed the mark a little 
little bit understandable, but that they didn't even name it, right? They didn't name what is happening. I think that is a cause for. So despair. your cause for hope is really what civil society is doing, yeah. and your cause for despair is what the institutions which Institution, are set up yeah. to protect us are, yeah. uh, you know, how they are mishandling their. Yes. Uh, and the the most to just add a little more context to what Alok was saying, if you actually go through the judgment. It doesn't read like a judgment. It reads like uh, the kind of lecture a judge would give if he was invited to some event. It's yeah. completely devoid of any context, and also uh, he like parrots these very slogany kind of phrases like the unity and diversity, and which he says at least like twenty times, and he doesn't wow. say like uh, Dalits once. Uh, so, uh, given that the sort of uh, judgment is written in this very sloganeering kind of uh, uh, fashion, which, to be fair, is also Deepak Mishra's writing style. Uh, the absence of like a clear uh, sort of denial or call to arms against this kind of uh, behavior is uh, even more stark. And and uh, would you like share his reasons or like what are your reasons for hope and despair? If you have something to add. Uh, well. My reasons for hope are, um, I'm going to be a little more selfish in that uh, we are currently working on a project on this, hopefully that will have some... That's uh, Takshishila and Vidhi. Uh, yeah. Vidhi. Right. So hopefully that will have some impact on the discourse. Yeah. The law is, I think, being a bit too ambitious. Uh, and sort of my primary sort of pet peeve with this whole issue, which I haven't discussed in detail so far, is... And I've written an article about this in the in the Hindu. Is that uh, sort of organizations which are otherwise formally or legally recognized can commit these uh, acts? Their members may get arrested and get thrown under the bus, but the organizations go scot free. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, in terms of signaling, if you can somehow even find. Uh, forget ban I don't even want to go, go into banning organization because that's a problematic uh, proposal constitutionally so Sardar Patel once did ban the RSS uh, leave that aside but it, it's much more uh, liable to abuse exactly uh, I agree uh, with that so I don't want to get into banning but some kind of accountability to the organization some kind of group liability I think needs I think will go a long way at least with the uh sort of virtue signaling so that we can then at least go back to a narrative of bad eggs as opposed to these large monolithic institutions that are behind these people's backs. Uh, so that is what is one area that sort of, I think, uh, gives me cause for hope. Uh, cause for despair is pretty much everything else. <laughs> uh, would you allude to the the current state of our criminal justice system, whether it's the courts, the prosecution, the police, uh, it's uh, one of the recommendations that uh, Deepak Mishra gives is the, the, I think the favorite for any criminal uh, issue, which is uh, the fast track courts. Mm -hmm. uh, in my brief one year of practicing, I visited the same fast track court six times for the same matter and it was always the same stage because it was an appeal of awaiting records from the lower court. So this is the current state of fast track in our country. It is a, it is an eye, it, it does nothing. 
maybe they should put a jogging track around the fast track court so at least it'll have some kind of fast track around yeah. it oh. i know that's a bad joke but so is our system right yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah or oh, yeah. maybe take a, a sort of a cue from silicon valley and maybe have a standing desk designed to uh, the court <laughs> but right. uh, but yeah it uh, everything else pretty much is i think you already said that a lot, a lot of the things that we're talking about are predicated on having a criminal justice system that we simply do not have right and on that note of despair we hope you enjoyed listening to us alok and madhav thanks so much for coming on the show thanks for inviting us yeah my pleasure If you enjoyed listening to this show you can follow Madhav on Twitter at matchup88 I think Alok is off Twitter at the moment but you can follow me at Amit Verma A M I T V A R M A and for past episodes of the scene and the unseen just head on over to sceneunseen.in I'm Vishal Gondal, an entrepreneur. I've had the chance to meet and understand how some of the super achievers have hacked their way to success and they have done spectacular innovations. Now I take a closer look at these people's lives to find out what lies beneath the force. Only on the Vishal Gondal show. Episodes out fortnightly on Wednesdays on the IVM website app or your favorite podcasting platform.